Good morning. Welcome to Collegedale Community Church. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today. I'd like to invite you to stand up and say hello to somebody around you that you don't know. All right, it's nice to be able to say hello to our neighbors again. Um, we used to do that pre-COVID, and now we're going to start that again. Um, there are a lot of announcements that you're going to want to know about. They're in the bulletin. They're also online, so I invite you to make sure that you please read this. A um, lot of good information there. Um, also, our offering today, um, we have stopped doing the baskets, and we're probably going to keep it that way for a while or if not forever, but we have baskets in the back, so I invite you to, as you leave the sanctuary today, to leave your tithe and offering in the baskets in the back, and also up, upstairs we have baskets up there for you. Let's start our worship service off with a word of prayer, so I invite those who are able and willing to kneel. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you so much for your love, for your goodness, for your grace. Thank you that you give us eternal life. And Lord, we are just so grateful for how you deal with us, how you treat us, and how you love us. And Lord, as we're going through this world together, we have many hurts, many sorrows, many burdens. And Lord, I want to lift all of those up as a congregation to you. Lord, we leave them at your throne, knowing that you will answer them according to your will. And Lord, I pray a special prayer today as we open this worship service that you would send your Holy Spirit and your holy angels to illuminate our minds that we may understand the heavenly things that you have for us today. Be with Pastor Nate in a special way also. Uh, use him to speak to us. May the words he speak come directly from you, and may those words change our life for eternity. We love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. Welcome to Collegedale Community Church. We're delighted to have you here today. And today we are beginning our service with a baby dedication. Akamu Kihapihalani Askins. That is a Hawaiian name, if you are wondering. Akamu means Adam. And uh, have no idea what the middle name is, and I'm not going to try to say it again. But his parents, Stephen and Christy Oskins, are going to dedicate a Kamu today, and we're bringing up Big Sister as well. In Isaiah chapter 43, there's a beautiful message of comfort and promise from God. And uh, it's referring to Jacob, or the people of God. And when we come to the name Jacob, I'm going to insert a Kamu's name. But now, thus says the Lord who created you, Okamu, and he who formed you, Akamu, fear not, for I have redeemed you, I have called you by your name, you are mine. 
When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flame scorch you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Now we have a card here for you. And we also have a quilt. Now, this is your quilt, and I'm going to show it to you in a minute. But this quilt was made by hand by women in the church who have a quilting ministry. And when they make this quilt, make the quilts, they pray over them, and they pray for the parents. And they want you to know they understand life can be hard. You may find yourself down the road discouraged. You may even have chosen to not be involved in church. When you see this, know you were prayed for, you are loved, and you are always, always welcome here. All right? Do you want to see your quilt? Can you see it? He's going to win. I know. He's, he's going to win. He's got big eyes, and they are wide open. Oh, wow. Look at this, buddy. Now, you folks have family here, and we're going to invite them to stand. There they are. And uh, we're going to invite the rest of the folks in present that are present here to stand as well. And we will have our dedication prayer, and then afterwards we invite you to join us in song as we sing our dedication prayer. Our song. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful baby boy. We thank you for his parents, their dedication to you, and their desire to have their children walk with you. We pray that the promises of Isaiah 43 will be true in each of their lives. And our prayer, Lord, is that this boy will grow up serving you all the days of his life and that he will bring glory and honor to your name. We also pray that when you come in the clouds of glory, this family will be there, each one, to meet you in peace and to spend eternity with you. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Join us as we sing this song of dedication. Let's give the family a round of applause.
morning. Happy Sabbath. All right, so I know I'm up here by myself. This is the special music time. Yeah, I can come up and just sing. Heather's going to come up. She's going to sing by herself. You don't sing along then. You sing along in. to take him at his word just to rest upon his promise just to know the saith the Lord Jesus Jesus how I trust him how I've proved him more and more Jesus Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him more. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus, just from sin and self to cease, just from Jesus simply take. Life and rest and joy and peace. Jesus, Jesus, how I trust Him, how I've proved Him more and more. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust Him. Sorry, this guitar is getting old. When they get old, they get temperamental. Savior God to thee 
Thank you very much. Y'all sounded wonderful this morning. Happy Sabbath.
sounds upon the rock of ages. One trembling heart and soul becomes a servant bold and courageous. You've gone across the mountains and the seas, and I answer for all deepest Heather, thank you for that beautiful special music. The line that jumps out for me is the maker of each moment. What a beautiful description of our God. We serve a wonderful God. Thank you for reminding us of that message about our Lord Adonai. So we're moving through summertime. I don't know what makes summer summer to you. I haven't been in school for a while now, and yet for some reason I get excited about summertime. I'm always discouraged when I realize life doesn't change that much now that I'm not in school. But there's a few things that make summer, summer to me. One of the things I like to do is, is swim a lot with our family. We like to go out on boats. We don't own our own boat, so we usually go with friends or sometimes rent a boat. It was just about a month ago that we decided to rent a pontoon boat. And I was talking to the person who was helping us check out to rent this boat, and if you've ever done this before, rented a boat from a marina, they're always kind of sizing you up the whole time. They're going through the list of things not to do with their precious boats. And so he was going through the list, making sure I know, well, this is where the throttle is. This is where this part is. This is how you get the, the, in, the motor down into the water, this kind of thing. He's going through this. And um, as he's going through talking about the, how to make this boat work, he tells me this story just the week before of a gentleman who had come to rent a boat from him. And he's kind of doing the same thing, asking the same questions. Have, 
Have you ever driven a boat before? Oh yeah, 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 I've, I've driven a boat before. And he's going through, but as he talked to this individual, he started getting the impression like, I don't think this guy knows what he's talking about. So at, at the very end, he asks him one more time, uh, this, this person who worked at the marina, he talks to, to the person, the guest who's gonna be renting the boat, he says, so, so you've driven a boat before, right? And the guest replies, oh yeah, I know what I'm doing. Just, um, where's the break on this one though? You may or may not know that boats don't come equipped with brakes. It's not a, a luxury item that they have on them. He was pretending to know how to make it work. Pretending to know how to make something work can be funny. It can also be exhausting though. Especially if the thing that we're trying to figure out how to make work and the thing that we're pretending that we know how to make work is our lives. Every, every week we come to church here and it's, it's a common thing. Hey, how are you doing? Good. How's the things going for you? Yeah, I'm, I'm great. Sometimes I wonder how much pretending is going on. Pretending to know how to make something works can be tiring. Life can be complex. There's a lot to juggle and there's no crash course. It's kind of like rinsing a boat. Someone throws you the keys and says, good luck. And like the person in this story, we may wonder, where are the brakes on this thing? But life, like boats, doesn't come with brakes. It just keeps moving on. Have you ever felt overwhelmed with life? Have you ever felt like you were just using every moment just to try to keep it all together? I was reading online uh, the report of a Christian counselor. Her name is Nancy Smith, and she shared this coming from one of her clients, describing how it can feel to be overwhelmed with life. This is what her client had to say. She said, I'm exhausted. I feel like I can't keep up with everything that I have to do. I am snippy with my family. Even when I know I don't want to be and I try not to be, I'm snippy. I feel like I'm always behind. I have all these things I want to do, but I never get any of them done. I feel like I barely scratched the surface of my to-do list. I'm just tired of never feeling like enough. Never thin enough, never smart enough, never happy enough. You know, she went on, I have so much to be grateful for. I am so blessed and yet I am miserably exhausted. What's up with that? Have you ever felt like that before? Miserably exhausted. If you have, you're not alone. I was reading online, according to market research, the self-help industry, that industry that tries to help us know how to get our lives together, how to find balance, how to be more productive, how to do life better, essentially, it's a $9.9 .9 billion industry. That was in 2016. It was projected to grow significantly more. The point is, there's no shortage of podcasts, books, groups, TED Talks, perhaps judging family members who all seem to have advice on how to make your life work. And this is something we all want, isn't it? We all want life to work out. We all want the best life possible. We all want to be as happy as possible. And while our visions of the good life may vary between us, the good life often comes with adding to life the pursuit of happiness by making sure life is full of just the right experiences, making sure that we have just the right relationships, the right accomplishments, vacations, stuff in our garages, followers, likes, degrees, the list doesn't stop. And so neither do we. We keep pushing for life to work. There are kids' noses to wipe and homework to get done. 
There's a house to be cleaned. There are states to get in order, and there's laundry to be folded. There's people to support. There's taking care of our health. There's lawns to be mowed. There's bills to be paid. And to, and to add to this reality, we realize that there's no way we could possibly do all of these things, but we keep trying, and it's exhausting. We comfort one crying child, only to feel guilty about not being able to comfort the other crying child. And supper just burned, and that thing broke. And life can be exhausting. Or maybe you're working and you're finally getting some headway on a project at work that you're really excited about, but in the midst of this one thing going well, all of a sudden two other projects blow up in your face. And you just read a nasty email from someone who feels like you're doing terrible at your job. And instead of being able to deal with either of those things, you have another meeting to go to. And life can feel exhausting. I know as I think of my own life, I have much to be grateful and yet I can tell when life's getting too exhausting for me. There's a telltale sign that always shows up. It happens at night when we're supposed to be getting ready for bed and I'm reading good night stories to my daughters. And I'll be aware that life is getting too exhausting for me when all of a sudden I start to hear giggling from my wife. And she's giggling because I'm putting myself to sleep as I read stories to my daughters. I'll be mid-sentence and start slurring what's going on and not be able to finish the story. So don't ask my girls how the hungry caterpillar ends. They don't know if he ever gets enough food to eat. They, they're waiting to find out. And I'm beginning to worry if my kids will think that every story ends with an unintelligible ramble instead of a happily ever after. And yet while we want our lives to be happy ever after, the reality is as we look at our lives, sometimes it does feel like they're just drifting into an unintelligible ramble. Maybe it doesn't sound like that, but maybe it feels like that, where our lives are going. What about you? Have you felt exhausted? Have you felt the pressure of trying to make all of life work? Did you know that your rest, your heart, and your concerns are something that God cares about? This morning, I wanna talk about that in a message entitled, I will give you rest. And my prayer is that as we open up God's word to a familiar passage, that our hearts can be reminded and find rest in Jesus. Before we do that, would you bow your heads with me one more time? We'll invite his spirit to be with us just now. Our most gracious heavenly father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for being our Adonai, our Lord. Lord, you're the creator of rest. And our hearts are thirsty this morning for the rest that only you can provide. We ask that you would send your spirit just now to help us accept that rest. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. I wanna invite you to turn to our main passage we're gonna be looking at this morning. It's found in Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. As you're turning there, uh, we'll have it up on the screen for you as well. I'll be using the New International Version this morning, although you might catch me deferring to the King James Version because that's what I memorized it in as a child. Beautiful verse, beautiful verse. I invite you to turn there. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. You can read along with me here quietly. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and then out loud, I want everyone to read with me. The last part, it says, I will give you rest. Isn't that good for your heart just to read that one verse? I love this invitation from Jesus. There's something about reading this that immediately lets my heart start feeling more relaxing, knowing that God wants to bring rest into my life. As we look at this passage, we need to understand the background of what's going on here. So we're going to look at what's happening in Matthew chapter 11. It starts off, you guys will remember, it starts off with the story of John the Baptist, one of Christ's most faithful followers, being in prison. 
And he begins to wonder, he looks at his current situation and wonders, is this really what we've been waiting for? Is Jesus really the Messiah? So he sends some, some of his messengers to Jesus to ask, Jesus, are you the one we've been waiting for or should we keep looking for another? And Jesus is not offended by his question. Instead he says, yeah, go back and report all of the good things that are happening. Clearly these will be signs to John to let him know, your, your life's not wasted, it's not in vain. This is the moment you've been waiting for. It just may look a little different than you imagined. Jesus goes on to commend John and says, there's no one like him. But then he moves on to two categories of people. And, and as I've read this chapter before, it's, it's, it's felt kind of convoluted why these next two portions are between John's passage and this beautiful invitation to rest in him. But you can begin to understand why these passages are here because these are groups of people who are not finding rest in Jesus. And so he's gonna talk about these groups before going into his pronouncement, his invitation for people to come and rest because it's these people who are on his mind and are on his heart. Let's look at the second group of people first that appear. And we can find this group of people in Matthew chapter 11, verse 20. Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they didn't repent. They didn't change even though he had done amazing things for them. So verse 21 says, Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted to the heavens? No. You'll go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on that day of judgment than for you. This is an intense passage, isn't it? I mean, this is an intense way for Jesus to talk right before he says, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. But we begin to understand why, because you can imagine the frustration. Jesus knows he has rest. He has what they need, but instead of repenting, even in the midst of miraculous displays that Jesus is the Son of God, they're ignoring him. They're not accepting this invitation. And so you can understand why Jesus is frustrated. Let's back up just a few verses before that. We find the second group of people that I believe are on Jesus' mind when he gives this invitation to come and rest. It's in verse 16 through 19. He's just finished explaining how wonderful he thinks John is, how he's a wonderful person of faith. And yet he says, even the smallest person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. And then he goes and he compares John with his great faith to those other people that were part of his current generation. Verse 16 says this, to what can I compare this generation? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, but you didn't dance. We sang a dirge, but you didn't mourn. What he's describing is a group of people that are expecting Jesus to do one thing, and he's not doing it. It's essentially saying, hey, Jesus, we did A for you, but you did B. We did this, expecting you to do that, but you didn't. It goes on, and he says this, For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. But then he switches it and says, But the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. What he's describing is a fickle people. They complain about John because he acts one way, but then they complain about Jesus because he acts the opposite of John. And what it's describing is someone who is trying to define how Jesus should act. It's a group of people who are saying, God, if you don't act this way, then I question if you're God. I question if I have room for you in my life. 
And it's this last context, this last group of people that's important because I believe if we're not careful, we can fall into that same category of trying to define what Jesus will do in our lives. See, if I were to ask each of you here in this room what burden is on your heart, what you would like Jesus to lift, we would all be able to answer like that. We know, we know where we want Jesus to show up in our lives, but we never should put Jesus in a box saying, Jesus, if you don't show up this way, then I'm not going to believe in you. Let's find out about this, more about this verse. Matthew chapter 11, once again returning to verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am humble, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, if we stopped at verse 28, I think a lot of people would like this verse more. If we stop at verse 28, it's such a welcome invitation where it says, come unto me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. If we, if we stopped at verse 28, we might expect Jesus to offer us a vacation. Maybe he would get us a new sleep number mattress. Maybe he would sign us up for a yoga class. But we get this concept that Jesus will provide rest. But it gets more complicated as we read these last two verses, doesn't it? Because he begins talking about burdens and yoke. Let's look a little bit more about what those look like. First of all, let's start in verse 30 to understand this metaphor a little bit better. It says, my yoke is easier. Some translations, I like how they say, my yoke is gentle. I think a lot of us are kind of familiar with what a yoke is, right? It's a piece of farming machinery. It's a tool, something that they would use back in this time to essentially connect whoever was going to be carrying a load to whatever that load was. So oftentimes you hear in the Bible, they're talking about a yoke of oxen, strong animals that are pulling some type of a load. The type of yoke that's being referred to here is probably one made for people though, because people also wore yokes. It was a similar tool to what we equate a wheelbarrow with today. If you have to carry a bunch of bricks, it's a lot easier to do it in a wheelbarrow. If you're wearing a yoke, it's easier to carry those bricks as well. And so it's a tool that's supposed to make the load that you're carrying easier to carry. So metaphorically, it became used as an expression of saying your yoke is essentially the things that you're doing to try to make life work. It's the way that you're living life. Your yoke is how you're living life. So by the time of Jesus, the rabbis had defined this expression even more to be their interpretation of the law of God. The law of God is really God's way of how we should live life, how we should make life work. And so the rabbis came along and they said, okay, our yoke is gonna be our interpretation of the law. So at the time of Jesus, their yoke, depending on which rabbi you went to, had some 650 things you should or shouldn't do in order to make life work. It's exhausting. But that's what their yoke was. A new rabbi would come along and he would have a new yoke or a new interpretation of God's law. And it was supposed to be a way to make life work for you. For the common people though, the term yoke, to take someone's yoke upon you, had more of a negative connotation. If you read throughout the Old, the Old Testament, when it talks about someone having a yoke on it, usually it's referring to like a yoke of bondage. And so God's people praise God when, for example, he delivers the Israelites from the yoke of Egyptian oppression. So in their minds, by this time, when, when Jesus is using the term, my yoke is easy, essentially most people were viewing yoke as a way of life, but in kind of a negative way. 
For most people, they viewed the yoke as basically the chain that burdened them, that held them to the burdens that someone else was having them carry. And so it's a unique expression for Jesus to use, but the point behind it is he was saying, listen, come to me. If you come to me, the yoke that I give you, the way of life that I give you, it's easy. It's, it's good, it's, it's kind, it's not burdensome. And so we move on to this other term, which is burden. We find it at the, at the end of verse 30. Now we know what burdens are, we all experience those every day. Burdens are something we know about. A loose description could be the things that weigh on our hearts, minds, and sometimes our backs. It's the things that we do to make life work. It's the stuff that we do that's either what we choose to do to make life work, or it's the things that other people choose for us. And so sometimes we don't choose our burdens in life. Someone struggling with a, with a health issue might be burdened by that. You didn't choose that. It's just the burden that life has brought to you. Other people are burdened for their children. That's a choice that you're making. You are choosing that burden. Whether we choose our burdens or not, they're the things that weigh on our hearts because we feel like these are the things that are important to make life work. And Jesus was immensely concerned about the weight that people were carrying in their hearts. If you jump over a few, a few chapters to Matthew, chapter 23, verse 4, we'll have it up here on the screen. This is one of, one of Jesus' main concerns with the religious teachers of his day. Because the whole point, when Jesus was sharing the law with people, that was trying to be an attempt to help people know how the best way to live life, how to have the best life possible, but instead the religious leaders were burdening people. We can read about it. Matthew 23, verse four, speaking of the Pharisees, he says, they tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. And you guys are familiar with this. He's talking about all of those extra requirements that religious people were putting on the law of God to say, listen, if you want life to work, not only do you have to do the things that God has commanded, but you have to do these 650 other things in order for life to work out. Can you imagine how stressful that would be, trying to make sure that you're doing each and every one of those things to make life work out? It describes a very non-restful existence. Now contrast that to the burden that was on Jesus' heart. Turn back just one chapter, and Jesus' definition of what life is all about is so much more simple. We find it in Matthew chapter 22, verse 37, when a, when a Pharisee comes to him and says, what's the greatest law? Essentially, he's wanting to say, what's the main direction I should point my life in? And Jesus' response is so simple. He says, love the Lord your God with what? All your heart and with all your soul and with your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. It's so simple. Essentially, Jesus is saying, listen, this is the burden I have for you. It's for you to grow in your relationships with God, with others, and with yourself. You don't need 650 other rules. Just do this. And it's a much lighter burden that he has. It's a beautiful simplicity that Jesus is wanting people to have, to not be burdened by trying to do all these other things in life to make life work. Instead, he wants to offer rest by having people accept his burden instead. But honestly, if I'm gonna be honest with you guys, I've been a Christian for many years. And there's been moments in my life where even though I've accepted Christ as my savior, even though I'm wanting to accept Christ teaching his yoke, his way of life, if I'm honest, if you looked at my life and if I opened up to you about it, I feel exhausted. I feel tired and I feel burdened. 
And, and it's a privilege as a pastor to be able to talk to some of you guys, and I know that some of you share similar experiences where you love the Lord, and yet you're still experiencing exhaustion and burnout, you're tired. What should we make of that? I think as we continue to, to read this passage, understand what Jesus is saying, it becomes clear, although the application is kind of difficult. I have a way to illustrate. I'm gonna invite my friend Gabriel to come up for this. I was, for this illustration, I needed someone strong, so I thought Gabriel's a strong guy, just a recent graduate from high school, volunteer firefighter, serving his community. And so Gabriel does know what's about to happen. This isn't a mean trick. I've got a weight here, Gabriel. It's real, I, I kind of expected you guys to cheer. This is a lot of weight. I just lifted it up. It took, it took me like all week to work on this. This is, just happens. 45 pounds. You think you can hold 45 pounds? Yeah. You sure it's heavy? Yeah. I think you can too. All right, 45 pounds. Don't drop it on your toes. It would hurt really bad. Okay, now I know you're a strong guy. How, is it heavy? Sort of. It's sort of heavy. Okay, okay. What I want you to do is you can just do some squats and keep lifting it here while I'm talking. All right, 45 pounds. I think it was heavy. In fact, I didn't have Gabriel up here the first service and I was just holding it and I was like, man, I'm gonna get Gabriel to hold it. It's a lot easier. It's heavy. It's heavy. And it can symbolize the burdens that we carry in our lives. It's a heavy weight. And while anyone can carry that weight for a certain amount of time, if you were to walk around with this weight, 45 pounds, if you were to do that each and every day, it would be exhausting. And so we come and we hear what Jesus has to say. And what Jesus has to say is, take my yoke upon you, because my burden is what? What does he say? Because my burden is what? My burden is light. Well, that sounds like a good invitation, right? I would like a lighter burden. You doing all right? Yeah. All right, I think so too. I know, I know Gabriel can handle this. So I have a lighter weight here. <laughs> this one. It's just 10 pounds. I didn't have to practice at all this week to hold this one. It's only 10 pounds. It's a lot lighter. You doing okay? Yeah. Okay. It's only 10 pounds. I could walk around with this all day, and I bet you could too. This one's pretty doable. I could lift this all day, and I could be okay with it. It's lighter. It feels good. Still doing okay? Yeah. Okay, okay. All right, I just want to make sure. And here's the challenge. If you guys had a choice between carrying a 45-pound weight all day and a 10-pound weight, which would you choose? Well, you might want to be bulking, so if you're doing that, maybe the 45. But if it's life in general, it's a no-brainer that we're going to go for the 10-pound weight, right? We can handle this. But here's the problem. A lot of times when we come to Jesus and he says, take my burden because it's light, we do this. Here you go, Gabriel. There's 45. There's 10 for you. Keep lifting them. We don't do the trade. What Jesus is talking about in this text is a transaction. He's saying, come, leave your burdens here and take mine up. Because here's the deal. If you have to lift both of them, it's exhausting. Uh, Gabriel, I'm going to let you go because I'm going to talk for a little bit longer. Can you guys give Gabriel a round of applause? Good job, man. It can be exhausting, and it is exhausting because I've talked to some of you before, and this is one something that can catch Christians off guard. We know we want rest, and we want the lighter burden, and yet so many times when God offers us a lighter burden, 
We'll take that, but we won't let go of our other burdens. We'll hold on to it, and that's why Christians, rather than being the most rested people in the world, rather than having the most peace, can actually be some of the most frantic and anxiety-driven and stressful people on the planet. Because they're trying to balance their burdens and carry the burdens that the rest of the world has, and they're also trying to add to it serving God and doing the things we know what he wants from us. Have you seen someone do this before? It shows up all the time. We might say something like this, okay, God, I know that one of the burdens you have for me, one of the ways of life that you want for me is honesty. And so we say, okay, God, I'm going to be honest. And that's all well and great until we realize, hey, one of my other burdens, maybe not your burden for me, God, but one of my burdens is to achieve great things at my job. And so we may come up at a point in our career where we have to stand up for honesty and we do that and because of that we may lose our job and we realize these two things don't always work well together. And we have the double burden of trying to carry the load that Jesus has for us while not trusting him and still holding on to our load. Do you get what I'm saying? And this can be a miserable way to live life, trying to carry the double burden and God's solution to it is clear. You have to put down your burdens. It's only when you put it down that life becomes light again. This is the invitation that he has for us. And yet, I, I'll be honest, I understand that can be incredibly frightening. Because my bet is, if I were to talk to you about what burdens your heart, it's probably not something silly. You're probably burdened for people that you love. You're probably burdened for things that are incredibly important. And when it comes to things that are the most important to us, it can be hard to lay those down and say, God, I'm gonna trust you to provide for me what I need. But if we don't lay that burden down, we find ourselves in the same category of people that Jesus was saying, we played a song for you, Jesus, and you didn't dance. We did this for you, Jesus, and you didn't respond the way I wanted. Jesus, I wanted this to happen, and you didn't do it. We need to trust Jesus, and the Bible tells us we can trust him. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 7, you, I'll just go there very quickly. You know this text, a beautiful text, and it says, cast all your anxiety, or I like how some translations say, cast your burdens on him. Why? Because he, what? Cares for you. We can trust Jesus. We can cast our burdens on him because he cares for you. We can trust him. He's a good God. We can trust him with the things that are most important to our hearts instead of trying to act like we have to come through for ourselves and carry that burden by ourselves. We can trust Jesus with that. And that is what the heart of his invitation in Matthew 11 is about. Let's look at one final point that shows that to us. Matthew chapter 11, back to his invitation to find true rest. The heart of it's right in the middle verse. And when I say the heart, it literally talks about the heart of Jesus, which is beautiful. Did you know this is the only place in all the Gospels, if you were to combine all the Gospel accounts, that would be 89 chapters written about Jesus. This is the only place in the whole Gospel account where Jesus self-identifies what's inside his heart. And that's really interesting. I love to know what makes a person tick. That's why I like to read biographies or autobiographies of people who've done accomplished notable things. It's so fun to try to get a glimpse of what's inside this person that worked its way out to equal that in their lives. And so we come to Jesus and we may wonder what's inside Jesus' heart. This is beautiful. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Verse 29, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle 
and humble in heart. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus is saying, hey, what's inside my heart the most? He could have chosen a number of things. He's God. He could have said, there's power in my heart. There's achievement in my heart. He says, I am gentle in my heart. I am humble. Some translations say I am lowly or I am meek in heart. What's going on with these words? Now, I did a word study on these because it's really fun when you look at the original languages. Sometimes when you look at them, you can find slight nuances between the two words and be like, maybe there's something. There's not. They both mean the same thing. It means what it looks like it's saying. He's basically saying, I'm humble. And you can understand why it's doing this. In the Hebrew language, uh, which Matthew, you know, he would, have, he would have come from that tradition. In the Hebrew language, they didn't have a lot of words available. So sometimes to make a point, they would say the same word twice to let you know this is really what something is, is like. So for example, in, in the story of Genesis, when God's talking to Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, he says, don't eat from this tree, for on the day that you eat of this tree, you will surely, do you know this part? surely die. In the Hebrew, the word is, on the day that you eat of this tree, you will moat, moat. It means you'll die, die. You'll really die, die. It's using the same word twice to make the point. It's really going to happen. And that's what, that's what you can imagine Matthew is doing here with that Hebrew mindset, even though he's writing in the Greek. He's saying Jesus is meek, meek. He's lowly, lowly. He's humble, humble. And it's amazing to think that our Savior is described like this. Because it's, it's a humbleness, a meekness that shows that his heart isn't ambitious. It's, it's not demanding. It's not fixed on perfection. It's a God we can come to. Now, the type of meekness and humbleness that's being described here, um, I, I was recently experienced something that kind of illustrates what's going on. So um, you guys hear a lot of stories about my kids. This is my life. And uh, recently... I was really excited because I got some soccer goals for my girls. Now, this is a big deal for me because I'm living in Barbie land and in princess land. And so for me, I was really, really excited because I'm not very good at imaginative play and I'm tired of being Kristoff. And so I got these things for my girls. We got them for them. They're these foldable soccer, soccer nets with nets over the top of them, kind of these domed type things. And I'm excited. It's like, okay, we're going to break out of, of the prince and princess mold and just play some good old soccer. This is going to be great. So I get a small soccer ball and I'm excited about it. So I take them out there and I'm practicing with them. And I explain the mechanics of how a simple game of soccer works, just the basics. You know, you touch it with your feet, you kick it around and see that's the goal. And we come over here and this is how we make points. This is how we score. You kick that ball in the goal. So we're working through the, the logistics of how you win at soccer, how you make points. I feel like I've explained it well. And we start kind of kicking the ball around and they're kind of having fun. And um, as we're doing this, um, I'm having to practice some humbleness, right? If you've ever played with a toddler, and you're bigger than them, the reality is you could score every time you wanted to, right? We understand this. And so a good father doesn't do that, I'm told, so I wasn't doing that. I'm not gonna kick in and have a power trip here and make goals on my daughters. That's not the point of this game. And so I'm practicing a form of humbleness, being humble, that is restraining my ability. That's one type of humility. And that's the type of humility that we would expect would be in Jesus' heart, right? because he's God, restrained humility. He doesn't have to be humble, but he is. And yet, as you go through and see how this word that describes, these words that describe his humility, they describe a different type of humility. It's not a humility of restraint, it's a humility of poverty. 
a humility that would suggest he doesn't have another option. He's not just holding back, he just genuinely is humble. And I began to wonder, like, why is Jesus' heart being described like that? I expect the restrained humility. Why is it saying that Jesus has no other option, a, a humility of, of, being de- of, of not deprived, not de- you know, being deprived of a situation? Well, the story with my girls goes on. So, so they kick a ball, or I kick a ball, and it goes pretty far down the, the yard. So I go, and I grab this ball to retrieve it so I can go back to trying to make points with my girls. And I go back... And I find both of them, my two older ones, they're just sitting in the goal. They're sitting there, shredding up pieces of grass, making supper, and they're sitting there, and I'm just like, okay, they're not getting how the game works. That's what I'm thinking in my mind. And then they simply say this, my oldest daughter, Ella, says, Daddy, just come play home, just come play house with me. (laughs) I hear the ahs, it is sweet but that's what I'm trying to avoid. (laughs) I want to play some soccer. Just come play house with me. And as I thought about that, I realized that's a different type of humility. I don't say this in a demeaning way, but they don't know how soccer works. They don't know how to make points. They don't know that game. The game that they know is a game of wanting to be with. And when I think of that kind of humbleness, not a restrained humbleness, just a humbleness that says, I don't even know how to play this game. I just wanna be with you. It's that kind of humbleness that describes the heart of our Savior. In the places that we're so set on needing to score in life, the places where we feel like we need to make points, the things that we feel like we've outlined for life being a good life, Jesus is saying, where you're trying to make a point, I just wanna make a home. I just wanna be with you. That's the type of invitation that we have, and it's when we understand that that's in the heart of our Savior that I think we can begin to trust putting our weights down. We can put our burdens down there and say, yes, God, I'm gonna trust you. I can trust a heart like that with what's most important to me. Lay that down and instead take up what you have for me. That's the great trade that Jesus wants in our life. This is the key to finding true rest. When we let God be God. And so the invitation for you this morning is simple. Are you gonna stop defining what you expect God to do for you and instead simply come? Are we going to stop believing that life will only be good if God does what we have in mind instead of letting God choose for us? My question for you is, is there anyone here today who's ready to say, Jesus, I trust you. And though the things in my heart are precious to me, I want to cast these burdens at your feet. I want to come to you. I want to find rest in letting you define what I need for this day. I want you to change the game. If you wanna accept that invitation, I wanna invite you to stand. I'm gonna invite you to respond by singing this song that Justin's leading out here about casting 
down what we have to Jesus. you bow your heads with me. Our most gracious Heavenly Father, you see those standing here today. You see this collective desire in our hearts to answer your invitation, to find rest in you. Lord, we ask that we can come before you and we can have the faith and the courage to lay what's most precious to us at your feet. To not try to do life on our own by carrying our own burdens or some mixture of our own with yours, but instead, Lord, realizing that rest is found in being in your presence, and letting you define what we need for that day. And so, Lord, we thank you for being a God whose heart is so good, a God who can provide. And we ask for that rest now as we continue our Sabbath day. We thank you for being a good God, a holy God. We ask this in your name, amen. Thank you so much for attending. We hope you have a wonderful, restful week.